Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. So it is so good to see you all, Charlene, Cal, Robin, Stephanie, good to see you guys. Lisa, everyone, just so happy to see you. It has been a wild time here in the land of Israel. Um, you know, I live in a little bit of a consciousness that biblical destiny is unfolding, Jewish destiny is happening. We're living in the midst of these historic times that will be remembered forever. And I haven't sensed it so powerfully since going to the Million Man March in the center of Jerusalem this last week. It was so powerful. A million people didn't come, but it, you know, it's hard to tell how many people were there because every media outlet sort of has its own agenda. So I literally saw numbers 000. from 600,000 to 400,000 to 100,000 to 90,000. But what I do know is that um, the cell phones all shut down. The cell phone service just, it, there were so many people that had never happened before in Israel's history where there were so many people that all cell phone systems in Israel just crashed. So it was apparently the largest demonstration that has been in the last 10 years in Israel. And when you were in the middle of that march with Israeli flags really fighting for the future of Israel and its character and its leadership, you just, if there was a Bible that was written today, we would have read about the story that hundreds of thousands of Jews marched through the streets of Jerusalem. And it was like energetic, like something that I've never seen before. And so when I was there, I took a short video because it is sort of the context that's everything that's happening right now in the state of Israel is around this war of identity. And you know, for me, it was important that I wanted my children to go. Not only that they would see and participate, but that they would learn that there's no room for us to sit on the sidelines everyone, even them, Noam is in second grade. I want them to do what they can do. And if by going there and waving a flag is that what they can do at their age, then that's what they're going to do. So I took my kids, we went to the center of Jerusalem, and I, I, I'm gonna, I, I hope this video captures the energy of that night. I did my best, but I've never been in a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people that was not like a prayer gathering, but they were saying the Shema. They were singing th like holy prayers through the streets of Jerusalem with hundreds of thousands of people chanting and praying aloud. It was unbelievable. So before we start this fellowship, I wanted to sort of give the background of where we've been on a national level before we sort of go deep into where we are on a personal level. So I made this video for you all. So check this out. This is a video directly from the Million Man March in Jerusalem just last week. All right, fellowship, I'm right here in the heart of the demonstration in Israel. I'm here with my kids. This is history that is unfolding. And where do we want to be? We want to be in the heart of it, fighting for a Jewish future, fighting for freedom, fighting for the will of the Jewish people to be fully expressed in the land of Israel. That's real democracy. And that's the future of Israel. Look at what's happening here. There are a few moments in life where you feel like you're in the heart of it all. This is the heart of the battle for the future of Israel. 
And you can see the demonstrators here are filled with love. They're filled with hope. They're filled with, it's like, we're gonna win. got for you kind of like from the heart of the demonstration with my children with like we were as in the mix as we could have been and it felt like we were taking part in history it felt like biblical history was unfolding before our eyes and instead of kind of watching it from the sidelines we're just in the mix of it all and i just wanted to start off today um with that background um and to bring us all together in prayer because Zechariah, the prophet, says, The win of Israel, the victory, is not going to come from power or strength or some military force, but through God's Spirit. And the more that I think about it, it is the mission of this generation to bring the Jewish spirit, the spirit of the Torah, a godly spirit, to the nations of the world and also to the heart of the people of Israel inside of Israel. And if we can do that, it's game over. <laughs> so maybe today we'll just start off with a little prayer. Hashem, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for allowing us to be alive in this generation. Thank you for bringing our fellowship together for such a time. We gather here every week like loyal soldiers. We carve out this time as we begin our week and align our lives with you. We realize that huge, massive things are happening all around the world, and we need to prepare ourselves. We need to prepare our families. We need to build our ark. We need to build our spiritual muscles so that we are spiritually strong. When the time comes, give us the strength to be who we need to be. We want to direct our lives towards the things that matter most. And this world is constantly trying to confuse us, deceive us, and tempt us, and distract us from who we are and what we're called to do and who you're calling us to be. So we turn to you, we turn to your Torah to shine a light before us so we can walk in your light. Bless this fellowship. Bless every family from around the world that has come here live today. Bless everyone who's listening to this now after this session. Bless them, bless their families, lift them up and give them the strength to lift up the people around them that they love. May the Torah we learn today go into our hearts and draw us closer to you. And as we grow closer to you, may we grow closer to each other. And through us, reveal your oneness in this fractured world. Amen. So my friends, I have a treat for you. And his name is Rabbi Ari Abramowitz. He's the treat. 
And so I just wanted to start off the fellowship from kind of the real life experience that we have to kind of pass it over to Ari. I know that he has a lot on his plate now, but I know that he has what he wants to say. So I thought we would just kick off with a dose of sweetness and goodness from Ari. So Ari, you take it over from here. Shalom, everybody. Shalom, Jeremy. Um, it was 852,916 people, just to let you know if you can hear me. And I know that because I counted them myself. I'm just kidding. I didn't count them myself. I don't know. But it was definitely not what the media was reporting. I was there also. I was very conflicted about going because, you know, I have to be at all of the prayer services. But I felt like I needed to be there. I tapped in deep and I felt like I really needed to go. Um, and lo and behold, the entire place was one massive prayer service. So I was able to, to lead prayers there. And uh, yeah, the soul services did crash, but only in downtown Jerusalem. It wasn't, wasn't the whole country. But anyways, shalom everybody in the fellowship. Um, I was, uh, I, there's a lot happening still here. And I, I wasn't sure that I was going to come on. But I really, I miss you guys a lot. Even though we did see each other last week. I know that. But I did have to leave early to lead the prayer service. And while... You know, watching the fellowship after the fact is meaningful. It's just not the same as being part of it together live, which is why we all come here every week. And so I'll tell you, the whole prayer service thing has been a journey for me. Because as you may know, Jews have three structured prayer services a day. Morning is Shacharit. Afternoon is Mincha. And evening is Ma'ariv. And you can always remember, I think Jeremy once made a slide about this, who instituted what? Because of the uh, the second name of their name, Avraham, the second letter is Bet, which is Boker. Yitzchak, the second letter of Yitzchak is Sorayim, which is the afternoon. And Jacob, Yaakov is Arvid. So Abraham instituted the morning prayer and uh, Isaac the afternoon and Jacob the evening. And, you know, while many people pray these services, you know, in their own homes individually, which I know I've done a lot, um, it's irrefutably a higher level to pray with a minyan which is a quorum of 10 men above the age of bar mitzvah. And in order to say the Kaddish, you know, the Kaddish prayer, which is a special prayer, one says in honor of the dead for the ascension of their soul, you need to be in a quorum of 10 men. So private prayer for me is no longer an option, at least not for the next 10 and a half months in which I will be saying Kaddish for my father. We say Kaddish for 11 months after the person dies. We could get into that another time. It's a whole other subject. But, uh, but again, you know, as we discussed last week, the prayer, Kaddish, isn't about death. It's about life. It's about sanctifying God's name in the world. And in the merit of the person who's no longer here in body, although they, you know, they're physically gone, God's name will continue to be praised and exalted here on earth in the physical realm in a way that he would not have been praised if the person in whose merit the Kaddish is being said was never born, meaning they came to this earth and even after they leave it, God's name is continually praised and magnified because of their presence here. So it's truly a beautiful thing and I'm grateful to be able to do this for my father. It's literally the very least I can do, even though it's not easy at all. And I feel an even stronger connection during the Kaddish than I feel with my father throughout the day, day in and day out, which is possibly a good reason for my struggle to keep from crying through it which gets less and less every day but uh you know so not only do i recite this prayer which is a great honor for me but uh the highest level is actually to lead the whole service 
which is a big deal, especially for me, because I'm not that good at it. Um, and so without getting into all the details, you know, due to where we live on this mountaintop, it's not easy to find minyanim, uh, uh, the minion prayer groups that I can lead. People usually ask me when they come out to the farm, you know, did you have a minion out here? Do you always have a minion out here? I say, I used to come outside and say, mincha, mincha. And I heard, meh, meh, right? And that's like what it was. But uh, so I have to go elsewhere to find this, these prayer services, the right one with the right fit. And, you know, I used to feel like I, I live my life and I sort of pray around it. And now I've been feeling like I pray full time and I live my life around the prayers, which, by the way, is not necessarily a bad thing. But anyways, uh, with the help of my beloved friend, Jeremy, uh, who's always there for me when I really need him in whatever way he has the capacity and ability to be there for me. He's always there for me to the greatest way that he can be. And uh, with his help, you know, we've now organized three consecutive days in the nearby village of Ibeanachal, where we have had Shacharit in the morning. Uh, Jeremy, who's more, sort of more of a real politique politician, made up some reason that he was going to be sponsoring cakes and cookies and coffee and whatever to sort of lure everybody in. Um, and so people came, but uh, I really think they would have come anyways, but they, it was still a nice thing for Jeremy to do. I it meant a lot to me and that he didn't say in order to get you to come for Ari, he took it on himself. What was the excuse you made up, Jeremy? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah it's, it's strange. You can't, I can't hear you. Oh, it was because... You got to the 22nd day of the Omer and you've never gotten there that far. You've never gotten that deep into consecutively counting the Omer. So he's sort of self-deprecatingly throwing himself under the train in order to, uh, you know, make a minion for me. And that was a very nice thing. And it's brought me a lot of joy and it's really changed my life that I can go right here and I don't need to travel. I just got a crazy, insane ticket on the way to Minion this afternoon. Not a ticket where they give me a fine. A ticket where I need to go to court because they made to take my license away for the ticket and they caught me with a drone. A drone! Anyways, because it was on the way to prayers, I know that this ticket was a blessing. I know it's a blessing from God. But anyways, um, you know, it's also up the holiness level of the entire region of our whole southeastern tip of Judea because now I'm not only leading the services but there are services happening there's another minyan happening which is uh I'm very happy to have in my father's merit and so in my very limited time today uh you know I want to share with you an unbelievable story and I want to share the story with you that it reminds me of but I'm not sure if I have enough time so maybe I'll leave that up to Jeremy maybe not but anyways I want to share with you this unbelievable story Last Saturday night, when we got up from Shiva, meaning we, my father passed away on Friday, and until the following Shabbat, we were sitting Shiva, morning with our windows covered, sitting on the ground, weeping, wearing the same ripped clothing. And then we went into Shabbat and we finished the Shiva. And uh, Saturday night was the first time I was going to lead the services. And I was in Modi'in, and I walked into this beautiful synagogue filled with seats. You know, in each seat, has a little diagonal, diagonal book holder attached to the back of the seat in front of it. 
Um, I'm sure, you know, there's that in different types of prayer, you know, synagogues or, or prayer buildings. Anyways, uh, so I walked in. For some reason, I'm hearing an echo. Are you guys hearing me well? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Okay. Okay, as long as you can hear me. Anyways, so I walk into the synagogue with these little prayer books. And the synagogue is empty. There's not one book out. Someone was very responsible and put all of the books away other than one little small blue Sidur on the second seat of the fourth row from the back. One sitter, all alone, right here, right here. And I couldn't believe my eyes because how, how could such a thing happen that my father's Sidur was there? I hadn't been there. I had, even if I went, I would never bring his Sidur there. How such a thing could even be possible? To me, it was a message that my father was with me, that he was there in the synagogue with me, that this path that I had in front of me of praying in the synagogue, it was with him and through him and through his prayer book, and it meant so much to me. Anyways, I was sharing this story last night with my family, and, uh, and one of my cousins gave a potential explanation of that story and how it could have happened. And my father, you know, he, he, she said that my father may have left it in my sister's house, and then my cousin picked it up and brought it to the synagogue and left it there. My cousin has zero recollection of doing that. And honestly, the whole thing is very highly improbable that it played out that way. But could it have been true that that's how it happened? And if that explanation was true, which I don't believe, does that ruin the miracle and the divine message that I've received? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it doesn't really matter if it's true or not true. It doesn't make it any less of a miracle of Hashem. You know, it reminded me of this story that Jeremy told me in the army, and he actually told me the story along with the whole unit. And I have the story that I want to share. I got the, a version of the story that I heard from Chabad, and the story you told is a little bit different, Jeremy. But it, it would take a few minutes. Is it okay? Should I share, Jeremy, or should I maybe send it later? Let me know. Jeremy can't hear me. Can you guys hear me? Give me a thumbs up if anybody can hear me. Okay, Jeremy can't hear me. I don't know what that means. So here's the story. I'll tell it because that's what it is. A famous rabbi uh, named Moshe Chagiz in his book, Mishnah Chachamim, writes that he heard this story that I'm about to tell you from reliable people in Sfat, in the book of Safed, who were there when it happened. And, uh, you know, I'm taking the story from Chabad, directly from Chabad. So in the mid-16th century, um, a converso Jew, you know, one of those Jews that had to act like they were Christian in order to not be tortured. They knew nothing about Judaism. This Jew from Portugal moved uh, to the holy city of Tzfat. And he didn't know anything about the religion of his fathers. And he was overjoyed that he was finally able to participate, but he didn't know much. And years later, he heard a talk by the rabbi of the synagogue in Tzfat about Lechem HaPanim, which was the showbread, which was offered in the holy temple each Shabbat. And after discussing the various laws and procedures governing the preparation of this, you know, the bread and its mystical significance, the rabbi sort of bemoaned the fact that because of our sins, we no longer have this ready means to, to worship Hashem through the showbread and to give this to Hashem. So this Jew that didn't really know much, he took these words to heart. And when he arrived home, he asked his wife to prepare two special halot on Fridays. And he told her all the details that he remembered from the lecture about the showbread and that she should sift the flour 13 times 
and knead it while she was in a state of ritual purity and baked the dough very well in their own oven. Anyways, he told her he wanted to present these loaves as an offering to Hashem. And hopefully Hashem would consider them acceptable, uh, you know, an acceptable sacrifice and eat them. And his wife uh, loyally fulfilled this request. And <clears throat> early Friday afternoon, when no one was going to be in the synagogue, the man brought the loaves there under his cloak. He snuck them in and he prayed and he cried that God should look upon his offering with favor and eat and enjoy this freshly baked bread. And he went on and on and on like a son that's like begging his father for forgiveness. And he placed the loaves wrapped in the holy ark in the Aaron Kodesh beside the Torah scrolls, and he left for home. Now the caretaker of the synagogue, who was a poor man that did not have much, arrived later that day to complete the preparations of the shul for the holy Shabbat. And one of his duties that he did to, to try to make ends meet, to put food on the table, you know, was to check that the Torah scroll was rolled to the proper place for the reading the next morning. And when he opened the ark this day, he was shocked to see that a package had been neatly placed inside and there were two beautiful, fine-looking challah loaves there. And he didn't know where they came from, but he was so happy to see them. And he was so happy to have them. And uh, that would be a huge contribution to his Shabbat meal. And so he simply decided to take them home and eat them. And they just smelled and looked so delicious. And they were delicious. And he and his wife were so delighted with this unexpected, wonderful gift that they knew, had no idea where it came from or how. Anyways, that evening, the Jew waited impatiently for the end of the prayers. And when everyone had left the synagogue, he approached the ark and he swung its doors open and they weren't there. And he was so happy. And he hurried home and he told his wife and he said, Hashem had accepted their offering and accepted their loaves and that he ate them while they were still warm. And, and he said, we can't, we have to do this. This is the thing we're doing. We have no other way of really honoring him. And we see that he loves our challah. So every week we have to try to give him pleasure with the same care and devotion that we did the first time. And his wife was in. And she wholeheartedly accepted this and cooperated on everything. And every Friday morning, she faithfully prepared the two loaves, praying uh, every step of the way and paying detail, every detail. And he and his wife earnestly prayed to Hashem that, he would be, that Hashem would accept their, their halot. And every Friday, the caretaker would come along and eat the delicious halas. And every Friday night, you know, that Jew, right after services went there and they were gone every week. And he was so happy and grateful that Hashem was eating the halas. This went on for months and months. And one Friday, the rabbi of the synagogue stayed later than usual until the afternoon. And it was the same rabbi who had given the speech at the very beginning about the showbread that inspired this Jew that knew nothing, you know, that to, to, do, to make these chalot. And he was standing on the bima reviewing the sermon that he planned to give the next day when to his surprise he saw one of his congregants enter carrying two loaves of bread, walk up to the ark and put them inside. And he realized that the man was unaware of his presence. And he heard him offering these, these prayers to Hashem that Hashem accepts and enjoy the chalot. And the rabbi listened in astonishment. Then at first he was silent, but then he began to understand what was going on and he got angry. And he was unable to restrain himself and he burst out in fury, stop you fool! How can you think that our God eats and drinks? It's a terrible sin to ascribe human physical qualities to Hashem. You actually believe it's Hashem that takes your silly loaves of challah? It's probably the shamash, the, the caretaker who's eating them. And at that moment, the caretaker entered the synagogue who went to get his chalot. 
and he was startled to see the rabbi and the man standing there. And the rabbi confronted him and said, tell this man why you came here and who's been taking the challahs that he's been bringing every week. And the, the character said, me, I've been taking it. I love them. He wasn't even embarrassed about it. He couldn't understand why the rabbi was so agitated, why he was yelling at this other man and he looked so unhappy. Uh, who He knew this man was a, a, a unlearned, but a very sincere Jew. And the rabbi continued his rebuke and the man, this converso, he burst into tears and he was crushed. Not only had he not done a mitzvah as he thought he was doing, but he'd been guilty of a great sin. And he apologized to the rabbi and, and he wept and begged the rabbi to forgive him. And he left the shul shame and shame and despair. How could he have been so wrong? Anyways, here's the story. So shortly thereafter, a messenger from the Holy Ari, not talking about me, we're talking Rabbi Yitzhak Luria from Tzfat. He strode into the synagogue and he approached the rabbi. And uh, in the name of the master Ari, right, this is his, uh, his messenger. He told the rabbi to go home, to say goodbye to his family and prepare himself. And by the designated time for a sermon the next morning, his soul would have already departed to its eternal rest. And that was the decree from heaven. And the rabbi couldn't believe what he'd heard. And he couldn't, he, nobody, the, the servant couldn't explain it to him. So the rabbi went directly to the Ari, who confronted, uh, who, who he confronted, and, and the Ari confirmed the message and added, as gently as possible, I heard that it's because you halted God's pleasure, the likes of which he hasn't enjoyed since the day the Holy Temple was destroyed. That's what he felt when this innocent Jew would bring his two precious loaves to your shul every week, faithfully offering them to Hashem from the depths of his heart with joy and awe and believing that Hashem had taken them until you irrevocably destroyed his innocence. For this, the decree was sealed against you, and there's no possible way to change it. And the rabbi went home, and he told his family all that had transpired. And by the time of the sermon the next morning, his soul had already departed to hear the Torah in the heavenly academy, which is exactly what the Ari said. And uh, he heard that, you know, Moshe Chagiz, he heard this from a reliable source in Sfad who heard that when it happened. And... Uh, you know, so the bottom line to me, when I think of that story, I think to myself, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if Hashem had, had uh, you know, uh, did a blatant, outright miracle and put my father's Sidur there, or whether it was my cousin that did it. Either way, it's a miracle of Hashem. Either way, it's a message from my father, that Hashem is sending me, that my father is with me on this journey to me. And it doesn't really matter how it happened. You know, uh, Albert Einstein said, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. And so I wanted to share that with you, my friends, because, you know, we're in difficult times right now. And sometimes it's hard to see how light is going to come from so much darkness. So much darkness is happening. But, uh, you know, even this thing that Jeremy's talking about, we both went to this Supreme Court reform thing. And like, who, how could light be brought from these totalitarian, authoritarian, secular leftist oligarchs commandeering the entire country and imposing their will on the nation of Israel? Because it's lighting up a spark in our soul. That's from Hashem as well. Everything is from Hashem. And sometimes it's the darkness and sometimes it's the light, which is all of you, my friends, in this fellowship. You're a tremendous source of light to me and to us. And, uh, and may Hashem bless you and protect you. And I'm very, very eager to see all of you next week when I will be able to be back at the helm of the fellowship and we can connect that way. So shalom, shalom. May you all be blessed. All right, thank you so much. That was...
really, really beautiful. I love that story. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for taking the time today. I just, um, I, I want to move on because we, I had a lot that I wanted to cover today. And um, I wanted to bring on Tehillah Gimpel. We learned together all of Shabbat. Parashat Kedoshim is Tehillah's favorite parsha. And I know that you have a lot to say in her teaching today. It's kind of like a um, an interwoven of our life inside the Torah. So I guess learn the way that I see it is that I'm just kind of fumbling into the light. I'm just trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good father. And I'm just kind of fumbling into I, what I hope is success. So here is probably um, an interesting insight into our marriage, <laughs> into the Torah portion. And I think you'll enjoy it. So here's Tehillah. Hi, everyone. So this week we read the portion of Kedoshim on how to live a holy life. Like, how can you be a holy individual? And this is actually my favorite Torah portion in the entire Torah because it's so condensed. You know, the sages sometimes refer to this portion as a kind of mini Torah because so many of the fundamentals of Torah life are concentrated right here. You know, it's kind of like Shabbat where you can kick back and relax. Like throughout the Torah, we actually have to work really hard. There's so many lessons, but we have to plumb them out. We have to dig them out. You know, there's stories of the patriarchs and the matriarchs and the exodus and the desert. And we have to try to like figure out what is this trying to tell us? How do I apply this in my life? And then here, ah, finally you get to Kedoshi where you're like spoon fed. This is what you need to do. You just get the holiness like straight into your vein without having to dig around. And it just tells us how to live. So it doesn't mean that it's easy. Like we have to understand how to apply these principles, but at least the principles are right there. And so I love this Torah portion. There's so much to choose from. It's really hard, you know, to pick which one to focus on because they're all so interesting. But there was one commandment that jumped out at me this week. It's particularly interesting uh, and challenging. And that is the mitzvah of rebuking your neighbor if they do something wrong, reprimanding your neighbor. At first glance, it looks kind of like a fun mitzvah. I mean, who doesn't like criticizing other people, right? Like, it's a lot more fun than criticizing yourself. And if you don't have a Jewish bubby, a Jewish grandmother, then you should get one because Jewish grandmothers love to tell you what you've done wrong. We tease my own personal bubby, may she be blessed with 120 years of good health, that she should write a book entitled I Could Have Been Prouder because while she surely is very proud of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren and all of their accomplishments, she still reminds us periodically that she could have been even prouder had we done X, Y, Z. Because Jewish guilt runs in our tradition. You know, in Jewish society for over the centuries, it was traditional to have someone called a, a magi tochecha, a person in the month of Elul that you would actually, that communities would actually hire to be professional criticizers. They would have, like, we, we've gotten criticism down to a profession, and they'd walk around the town saying, hey, you're not keeping Shabbat right. Ooh, nice stuff. Maybe you should be giving more tzedakah. This is a true story. So at first glance, it seems like a fun commandment. I, I mean, it's really fun to tell people what they're doing wrong if you're married to them or if they're your children, then it's like super enticing. But the sages teach us that this is one of the most complex, if not the most complex commandment to fulfill. The Talmud actually says that it is a. It is doubtful that any person in, our gen in, in, in their generation, imagine our generation is even worse, it is doubtful if there's any person who knows how to give a proper reprimand or how to receive it. And so it's a really, you know, so the sages are telling us that this is a really difficult commandment. So I want to try to delve into this. And Jeremy, I am imagining your um, perplexed or judgmental face as I'm saying that I'm going to teach this because perhaps you might be thinking that I am not the most qualified person to teach this because over Shabbat, let's just say there were um, 
a few like eensy weensy teensy things that maybe Jeremy did that bothered me. And after Shabbat, uh, I kind of wanted to bring it up and like be like, you know, those things that you did, I didn't really like them, but he did not want to play ball. He was not interested in having that conversation. I saw that. So then a few hours later, I was like, Jeremy, can we go back and just talk about these things that are bothering me? And, and then Jeremy said, um, you know, I would love to talk about anything you want to talk about, unless it's something bad about me, because I'm really not in the mood for that. And I was like, mm. and so <laughs> I said, fine. And he took that as like, fine. And then he rolled over and went to sleep, had a great night's sleep. And I'm mumbling and grumbling all night like I wanted to criticize Jeremy and he did not let me criticize him. And then Jeremy wakes up after his beauty sleep all refreshed and he goes, oh, darling, how did you sleep? And I said, well, how did you sleep? And he goes, oh, Baruch Hashem, I slept amazing. And I said, well, I slept terribly. And I'm thinking like, hint, hint, you know, pick pick up, you know, that I'm upset. And he's like, oh, that's sad. And then walks off, you know, do 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 And then eventually I'm like, can we just talk about what I'm mad about about Shabbat and you wouldn't listen to me? And he's like, well, now you're yelling at me. That's not really nice. And I'm looking back at that dysfunctional interaction and I realized that I was so mad, you know, and I like blew up and that wasn't effective at all. And so, you know, there's really this fine art in how to criticize another person. And that got me giving this a lot of thought and realizing, you know, I really want to study this mitzvah. So Jeremy, you can take that judgmental look up off your face because I don't think that in order to teach something, it means that you have to be perfect at it. I think that when we're learning Torah together, it's beautiful to take things that many of us struggle through, including the person who's teaching it. And maybe sometimes that's more powerful than learning from someone who just says, ah, you know, I'm perfect at this. I don't struggle at all. Uh, so I thought it would be interesting to, you know, I imagine I'm not the only person who struggles with this. Uh, I know this is something that a lot of people struggle with, like how do you bring up something with another person when you want to critique them? Uh, I'm sure you all, you know, everyone knows someone who's been on a new health kick or they've accepted, you know, something upon themselves that they think is really great and they love telling everyone what they're doing wrong. Yesterday, somebody told me a joke. They said, how do you know someone is a vegan? And they said, the answer is, you'll know. You know, when I first got married to Jeremy, I was like a really strict vegan. And if we'd be eating out with people who were eating meat, Jeremy would have to whisper to me like, babe, it's not really great for you to tell people about all the ethical wrongdoings of factory farming while they're taking the bite out of the burger because people aren't going to want to be your friend anymore, you know? So I had to pull that back. So I know this is something that we all have to deal with, right? Like, especially people who are on a growth trajectory in our Torah observance. Like how many of us have gotten really excited to accept upon ourselves a new Torah observance or new mitzvah and we have like family and friends that are not into it and maybe think we're a little nuts but we just are so excited we can't wait to tell everyone how we're doing things wrong right and we finally understand what they're doing wrong so you know this is like a thing that everyone struggles with I think so it's a wonderful thing to study together so let's go back to the source in Vayikra in Leviticus 19:17, it says you have to reprimand someone who's sinning. It says in 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your fellow, but you shall not bear sin on his account. Now, this commandment is really interesting because the commandment of rebuke is sandwiched between these two other statements. First, it says you mustn't hate your brother in your heart. Then it says you should rebuke. Now, maybe those are two commandments, right? This whole portion is like rapid fire of commandments. So maybe they're just two commandments. You're like, don't hate your brother in your heart. You know, good, good job. New topic. If you see someone sinning, go reprimand them. But another way to understand that is maybe the first two parts of the verse are one continuous sentence. Like you mustn't hate in your heart and therefore you must reprimand. Meaning the Torah is making a kind of connection that you mustn't hate in your heart. And that is connected to having 
a like direct conversation with somebody about the things that are bothering you. But now the last part of the verse just adds to the confusion. It says, you shall not bear sin on his account. That can also be understood in a few ways. Like one way is that if somebody is sinning, it's your responsibility to tell them off. And otherwise you're going to be responsible for the sin because you're not bringing it to their attention. You're not stopping them. Like you see somebody about to take a bite out of the cheeseburger and you don't say stop, right? It's like you're also responsible. But another way is to understand it as you should rebuke them, but be careful not to bear sin. Meaning if you hurt their feelings in reprimanding them, then you're going to be sinning, maybe making the problem worse. So, you know, there's two ways of understanding that verse too. So I'm sure at this point you're like, oh my gosh, she's really getting confusing. Thanks a lot, Tehila. I thought I understood the verse. It was really clear cut and now I'm totally mixed up. But I think that if we like think about it, we can break it into two kind of main perspectives that are jumping out of this verse. Um, you know, one is more outcome oriented and one is more relational. Like one way of reading the verse is that you have to make sure, we have like responsibility to those around us to make sure that they do the right thing and they don't sin. So, you know, the point of rebuking is to get someone to stop sinning. So you need to advise people, you need to lead people, otherwise you're going to be held responsible. If you see people around you doing the wrong thing, you can't just say, well, that's their problem between them and Hashem. You need to try to get them to do the right thing. But then it's going to be very outcome oriented if we look at that. And then we have a lot of lessons to learn there. For example, the sages teach us if a person is not going to listen, then you shouldn't rebuke them because it's going to be counterproductive. Another way of looking at the verse is more relational. Like maybe this is all about keeping love and good relations between people. Like if you read the whole verse as one long commandment, it says you mustn't hate someone in your heart. If you let bad feelings fester and build up into resentment, it'll destroy the relationship. So you have to share what's bothering you. But the end of the verse says, be careful not to carry sin. What sin? Maybe the sin of hurting that other person. Like you could make things worse and not better. It's a really fine balance. You don't, we all know people like who hold everything inside and don't talk about that. And that's like a poison that rots the relationship from within. But then there's people who always tell you what they think, like straight in your face. No resentment builds up, but you might have a bigger problem, which is they're constantly hurting your feelings, right? Which one is better? So the Torah is like sandwiching this mitzvah carefully between two other statements to teach us that we're walking a really narrow bridge here. Like it's a perilous mitzvah because you can seriously fall down on either side. If you harbor too much resentment, you can destroy the relationship. But if you're too aggressive, you can hurt the relationship as well. So you have to find this balance. So I think there are like two ways of reading this verse. Now, which one is right? And I would maybe say the answer is yes, you know, because we know that every verse in the Torah has so many possible meanings. There are 70 meanings to every verse that the sages teaches us. So it's not that one is necessarily right or wrong, but there are multiple lessons that can be learned from every verse. And the commonality, though, I think between every interpretation is that it, whether we're looking at it from the relational perspective or from the outcome perspective, is that there's great caution needed in doing this commandment. So as I said, I'm probably the least qualified person to teach this because I'm not very good at it, but I, in my shortcomings, have been trying to learn about this and I've picked up some ideas that I hope will help me and maybe they'll help others as well. So if the question that comes out of these verses is, if, if the idea that comes out of these verses is that we need to be really careful in doing this, so then how can we be careful in doing this? What is the right way? So I think that the first thing that we can learn is from the Torah is that you have to first, before going and criticize somebody else, we must do like our own heart check. It says you mustn't hate your brother in your heart, meaning we have to check our own hearts and make sure that our hearts are in order and we're not coming at it from anger or you know hatred inside, but from a really clean place. Um, the previous, the sixth uh, uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, the rabbi of Chabad, he once had to go and get an injection with the doctor. And 
he noticed how much care the doctor and the nurse were putting in washing their hands and sterilizing the needle. And he said he learned so much about this from the meaning, from for, for the mitzvah of rebuking another person. He said, you know, uh, like when you are going to criticize someone, it's kind of like an, it's like a needle. It's going to hurt. It's going, you're like getting up in their business and it's going to be painful for them. But you know what's worse than just the injection itself? If the injection was not sterile, if it wasn't clean before, it's going to be like a little bit painful. But if it's a dirty needle, it's going to be way worse. You're the needle in this parable. Like you better clean up your own heart and look at yourself first and make sure that your intentions are pure and your heart is clear you know, before you go and do this. I once heard a rabbi say that there's an inverse relationship between the people who like to do the mitzvah of rebuking someone else and the people who are most qualified to do it. Like the more you feel like, yay, I cannot wait to tell that person what they're doing wrong, the higher the chances you're not gonna do it right. And if you really don't wanna have that conversation, but you're forcing yourself to, because you're like, I know I need to talk to this person about this thing, the more likely it is that you're gonna approach it with a humble and clear heart. So the first lesson that we can learn is to sterilize that you know, needle. Another interesting thing that we can do is look at other places in the Torah where there is rebuke. I've heard Rabbi Yaakov Nagin say a beautiful lesson. He said that the, almost the entire book of Devarim, of Deuteronomy, is Moshe rebuking the nation. He's like telling off the nation of all the things that they've done wrong. And Moshe gives, you know, this big speech and he said, well, what can we learn from that? Moshe is doing it. How do we learn how to, you know, like the fine art of that? He said, you see it right in the very beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. It says, when did Moshe give his great, like, telling off, you know, his great uh, reprimand to the nation? It says he gave them after the um, conquest of Sichon. It says that in chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 4. So, meaning the first thing that we learn is the from, from Moshe is the when. The art of the when you give rebuke. It's very easy when someone is in the heat of the moment or when they're down or when you're, you know, like they've just done this thing wrong to like pounce on them and say like, no, you shouldn't have done that. What Moshe is teaching us is he doesn't go and give the rebuke when the nation is in the midst of sinning or when their spirit is down or when they're lacking faith or when they're in a bad spot. And there were plenty of those throughout 40 years in the desert. He waits until they just had a win, until they're like up. And when they're feeling good about themselves and things are okay and things are calm, it's at that moment that Moshe says, like, I can approach this, you know, I can approach this subject because I'm not kicking you when you're down. Like, it's when things are like, when we're a little bit separated from the sins. And so Moshe teaches us that. And then, you know, how does Moshe end? What is the last portion of the book of Devarim, of the book of Deuteronomy, is the portion of the Zota Bracha. And this is the blessing, meaning like not just raw criticism, but a criticism that's like wrapped in that's wrapped with like a nice wrapping of love and blessing. Um, another thing that we can learn from Moshe, Rav Nagin says, is, is that if you notice, much of Moshe's rebuke is actually about things that the generation of the fathers had done, meaning most of the people listening were not even the ones who actually did these things wrong. So he says, like, we have to take a long view. We're all in a long game. And sometimes there are processes that are going to take a really long time. We might not understand them, and they might be multi-generational. Like, you can see somebody that perhaps is not going down what we think is a righteous path. But we have to remember, life is a long process, and it doesn't finish with us. It can be a multi-generational process. Like, Moshe knew that there was a certain generation, perhaps they had a slave mentality. Maybe they weren't ready to hear these words. And... It's like this he's, he's teaching us this patience that we need to approach things knowing that like you wait for the right time and it might not even be the right time with this individual person. It could be that this person is not ready. They have something going on in their life to hear, but perhaps 
you know, in later in their life or even in the lives of their children, you'll be able to pass on this wisdom that you feel that you have for them. So that's, you know, something that we can learn about the when. And there's a beautiful story about the how that I want to share uh, that, I, that really that really touched me. There's a story about the Vishnitz Rebbe Yisrael of the Vishnitz, the Vishnitzer Rebbe. And he one day went into, you know, in his town, there was a banker. He knocks on the door and the banker opens the door. And the banker says like, oh my gosh, it's the Rebbe. Like, come on in, of course. And the Rebbe comes in, sits down in his living room and he's serving him, you know, tea. And he's very excited that the Rebbe is here. I wonder what he's here to tell me. And the Rebbe sits there in perfect silence, just perfectly quietly, doesn't say anything. And a few minutes go by and the banker's getting like really curious, like what is the Rebbe gonna tell me? And the Rebbe just sits there perfectly quietly and then dusts himself off, gets up, says thank you very much for the tea and walks out and the banker is shocked. And so then the banker like chases him out the door. He goes, Rebbe, Rebbe, please, I'm like so curious. Why did you come to my house? He's like, ah, well, you know, in the Torah, there's a mitzvah that you have to rebuke your fellow. You have to reprimand your fellow if they're doing something wrong. And then he starts walking away again. And the banker says, no, no, wait, Rebbe, what? You didn't rebuke me about anything. Like, what? And then the Rebbe says, well, here's the thing. There is a mitzvah to reprimand your neighbor when they're doing something wrong. But at the same time, the sages teach us, like I mentioned earlier, the sages teach us that if somebody is not going to listen, then you actually are not supposed to reprimand them. And then he starts walking away again. And the banker says, well, what were you going to say? Why didn't you say anything? He goes, because I knew you weren't going to listen. So I came to your house to do the mitzvah, but I just had to sit quietly because I knew you weren't going to listen. And the banker says, how did you know I won't listen? Try me. So the rabbi says, fine, you're a banker. And I've heard that in your bank, your bank is about to repossess the home of a widow that is not able to pay uh, her mortgage debt. And so, uh, you know, you're, the bank is really like as the head, you know, the owner of the bank or as the head of the bank, you're really, you're, you know, it's not right. But I didn't want to tell you that because you're not going to listen. And the banker said, well, listen, it's a bank. It's not, it's not my money. I'm just, I'm just run the bank, but it's, it's not my money. And I get to have investors and I have to follow the rules. And the rabbi said, I know. That's why I didn't want to say anything. I knew you weren't going to be able to listen. And he walks away and the banker's like all, you know, disgruntled. But then the Rebbe hears a few days later that the banker decided to personally take his own money and cover this widow's debts. And I thought it was such a great story. First of all, because it's a very cute story and it you know, shows how the Rebbe was so uh, clever in finding a way to try to approach this in such a way that, that you know, knowing each person and knowing their kind of personality and seeing what will be the right way to approach this and how, how will they listen. But I think the story is also great because it shows that the Rebbe realized that, you know, if you chase after somebody with your critique, then all it does is send them farther away. But sometimes there's like a quiet presence that you can have that by you being the way you are and being, you know, sort of a light to others, it will draw others' curiosity to want to ask, so you don't have to come after them and say, hey, I have something to tell you that you're doing wrong, but they'll say, please, can you teach me? And you know, people will come to you when you are able to have that kind of silent, patient uh, you know, example that you live in your life. That can be a light to others. And so, you know, and then this banker came and was like, please tell me. And 
you know, I think that that's just a really beautiful lesson. And what's also in that lesson is that sometimes it doesn't have an immediate effect. Like this person took a while to process that reprimand that he got. It's not like things are immediate. And the rabbi knew, like, give it time, let it seep in. And eventually that person, like it went into their heart. For him, it was a matter of days. For other people, it could be a matter of months or years. My teacher, Shoshana Harari, I'll never forget. Uh, she was my mentor and my teacher. And she once told me, she said, imagine when you feel like you know something that's right and true and good. Imagine yourself as a person with a torch in a dark cave. Imagine you're a person with a torch in a dark cave and you start chasing after everyone. They'll be like, ah, fire, right? When someone's chasing you with fire, you run. That's your instinct, right? But then imagine you're in the dark cave and you just sit with your torch and it starts emanating this warm light. What will happen? That same torch that people were running away from, people will actually be naturally attracted to. So it's like sometimes the best way to fulfill this mitzvah is to, you know, is to have that kind of quiet, pleasant, peaceful light that's still, and it's not chasing after the other person in order to, you know, give them the light, to like shove that light onto them, but just being a light that will attract other people. And sometimes that can actually be the best way of fulfilling this mitzvah. So those are some, you know, there's, there's endless, you know, things that can be said about this, but those were some things that spoke to me about this uh, mitzvah that I want to try, uh, at least try my best to work on and myself from, you know, pulling, drawing from this week's Torah portion. And maybe that'll be of use to others as well. So I hope everybody has a great week. Bye, guys. Thank you, Tehila. I absolutely loved that last analogy. I don't remember Shoshana teaching that, to just hold the torch and people are going to come to want to be around the fire. I absolutely love that idea because I really feel like we, like the world needs a torch right now. And that's what I want to talk about. The state of Israel, the modern state of society, marriage, life, and death, it's, it's dizzying, it's confusing, and the Torah was given to us as a compass to keep us directed toward the ultimate good. And in some ways, it's like Jacob's ladder. You know, if we're constantly aiming toward the heaven, somehow it's actually aiming toward the heaven that that roots us, our, our ladder, roots our, our life in the ground and provides us that stability because the world is just so dizzying. And this partial, we're taught something really deep about how to connect to God, how God will appear to us or how we can see God in the world. And at first it's a little bit daunting and even confusing, but I think that it is so important in our day and age to really let this idea uh, seep into our heart. And so I want to check out the first few verses of Aharim, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2. And here's what it says. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the kaporet, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear or I will be seen in the cloud above the kaporet. So God says here, listen, you can't just come in. There's a veil. You can't go past the veil and just come directly into me. I'll be, I'll appear to you or I'll, I can be seen in the cloud above the kapor. You have to light first the incense, let that room filled with smoke. And then with smoke between us, I'll reveal myself to you through not only the veil, but also the smoke. It's like, why does God need to appear to us through smoke? 
Why, if I want to see God, do I need to look through smoke? Like, what is that teaching us? What is that about? That's the Kohen that's embodying an idea here. And that idea follows us throughout the entire Torah. Abraham sees a fiery furnace. And then we see it through the desert. We have a pillar of fire. And then what do we have? A cloud, a, a cloud of smoke. And Israel's guided through their journey, following God with smoke and fire. Like, what is going on? And I think one of the ideas was beautifully put by the psychologist Carl Jung. And he says, that which you need most will be found in the place you least want to look. But sometimes it's like in the darker places. That's, that's really where you need to kind of explore what you're looking for. But that's kind of like on a psychological level. I really want to talk now on a spiritual level. What does that mean? I mean, we know Moses says, God, I want to see your face. I want to look at you straight on. I don't want the smoke. I don't want the veil. I want to see your face. And God says, I'm sorry, Moses. In this world, no one can see my face and live. You can't be bound in this body. See the ultimate truth of reality. You can only see my backside, which is, again, the same idea. It's like we need some sort of like smoke, mirror, veil. We need some sort of block in between us and God for us to actually connect to God. And, and I think that, you know, when you look at Isaiah, in chapter 55, I think this is really where it's, it's pointing us to. And it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so Isaiah is saying, he's like, you want to come close to me? It's like, first you need to know I am in a totally different realm than you. I am so far beyond anything that you can comprehend that you can't just approach God with a simple question. Um, my 15-year-old, Akiva, a 16-year-old now, came to me and said, there's two kids in this class that have sort of gone off the derech. They've sort of left the path of righteousness and they've taken it upon themselves to try to bring others down with them. And so Akiva has taken it upon himself to be like the, the, the justice warrior fighting in the name of God and are answering their arguments. And he came up to me and he said, you know, you know, these kids, they came up to me and they said, you know, you think that God is good and you think that God is all powerful. Well, how can God also be good and also be all powerful? And then there's a Holocaust and bad things happen. If he's so good, and he's all-powerful. You can't have it both ways. And what are you going to do with that? And I think that type of approach is exactly trying to look God in the eyes. And God is saying, I'm sorry. You can't come to me face to face. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. I had a long conversation with a fellowship member that was listening to a podcast, and it was a couple. And the husband decided to become not religious. He said he just he couldn't. After what he had been through with his grandchild, and he saw the horrible things that had kind of fallen. He's like, I just, I can't believe in God anymore. I'm just out. And, you know, Moses writes some of the book of Psalms. King David writes most of the book. But Moses, who was, you know, the highest level prophet, writes something really beautiful in Psalm 91, which is, according to the Midrash, was written by Moses himself. And look at what Moses says here. It says, he dwells in the highest secret place. Yoshev Beseter Elyon, the highest secret. He, Israel, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Betzel Shaddai Lonan. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge in my fortress. 
my God, in him I will trust. And you think about those two things together. Moses first says, I want you to know God is in the highest, most secret place. I mean, we just can't fathom someone that created this reality is not bound by the logic of our reality. So we can't use our, you know, peon minds here that are so limited by time, limited by space, limited by our IQ to really try to fathom someone that exists so beyond anything that's anything that's close to us. We need a veil before we can even approach. We need to fill that room with smoke first. We have to come first and foremost from a real place of humility. All we can do is stand in awe and wonder and live with the mystery of existence and be humbled by it all. In modern man, we've become so arrogant because we have so many achievements and technologies and sciences. It's like we've lost the ability to be amazed. Everything has become a cliche and everything is taken for granted. And it's like once life is taken for granted, sin is crouching at the door. We are going to miss the mark. And I remember when Chen was a newborn, and Chen is not a newborn anymore. Now she's five. She's so cute now. This is a picture that I have of, of me and Chen just hanging out, and she's doing bunny ears for me. And she's my youngest right now. But I remember when she was just a newborn, and she could see that she just loved Tahila. She wanted to be with Tahila. She wanted to snuggle with Tahila. She just wanted to be with Tahila all the time, but literally all the time. And then I was looking at Tehillah and Tehillah was madly in love with Chet. And, you know, Tehillah, she gets anxious if she has sniffles and she's nervous and she's up all nights. And I was thinking of those two loves of Chen and Tehillah. And I was thinking, you know, Chen loves Tehillah, but she has no idea how much her mother loves that baby. <laughs> she has no idea the stress and the and the anxiousness and the the worry and the love and the thoughts and the prayers and the dreams and the labor and all that Tehillah went through. Tehillah loves that. Like the, the newborn can't even come close to comprehending the love that Tehillah has. You almost, they were both using the word love, but it's like two totally different realms. That baby just has no chance of even coming close to understanding. Now, if we were to take our love and we were to point it out into infinity, at that point, Love, is that even a word? We can't really say God is good or God is all powerful. Those aren't words. We need a veil. We need to fill the room with smoke first, only in smoky words. We can't actually use words. And from that place, from the highest secret, then we can begin to approach God. But then what does Moses say? It's okay. At that point, we don't need to understand because he's the highest secret. He's the ultimate mystery. But what can we do? Psalm 91, I will say of the Lord, he's my refuge. He's my fortress, my God. In him, I will trust. I can live with God that's beyond my knowledge, that's beyond my logic, that's beyond time, that's beyond space. I can live with the Shekinah in my life. I can live with God's presence as a living presence in my life. That's what matters. How we understand God, good luck. We can't ever see God face to face. But we can live with God as our refuge. We can trust in God that he will guide our lives and straighten our paths. And that's what brings us to the Torah portion of Kedoshim. What does it say in Leviticus chapter 19, verse two, at the beginning of the Parsha? Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. And you think that's a direct command to be holy, but it doesn't say that as one of the lists of the 613 commandments. You shall love the Lord your God. That's a commandment. You shall be holy for I am holy. That's not a commandment. That's a question. What's going on here? 
Why is there not a commandment for us to be holy? That's key. What's going on? What is that? And the answer to that question is that to be holy isn't a mitzvah. To be holy is the entire purpose of it all. It's the essence of the entire Torah. It is the overarching reality, the spirit of the Torah itself. But so many people don't know what holy means. Holy does not mean only separated. It doesn't only mean elevated. On the contrary, what I would like to push back on that, and I would like to say something totally different. I would like to say that kadosh means the exact opposite of that. Meaning there are um, the verse in Isaiah that is so famous, kadosh, 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 Hashem tzvaot, melo kol haaretz kevodo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is filled with his glory. Their holiness doesn't mean separate. The continuation of the verse is that he fills the whole world with his glory. And so there is an Eastern philosopher named Lao Tzu. And he says, at the center of your being, you have the answer. You know who you are and you know what you want. And in some ways, that Eastern idea that he's projecting might be the right way to look at biblical faith. At the core of our being, we have an ability to sense God's presence in our life, even if we don't understand him. The more you feel connected, the more you feel the harmony, the more you feel at one, the more kedushah you feel in your life. What is holiness? Rashi says, when we say the word kedush, what we're actually saying is inviting. We are inviting God into our life. If we're making something holy, we're inviting God's presence into that holy item. If we're making time holy, Shabbat, we're inviting God into that day, into our life, into our Shabbat table. Holiness isn't separated, meaning it is saying we are dedicating this, but it's dedicating it, filling it, inviting God to enter into it. The Baal Shem Tov says, Hadvekut, Hi Hashina, Hi Haemuna. When you actually feel one, oneness, when you feel God's presence in your life, that is what the Shrina is, and that is what Emuna is. Emuna is not proving God's existence through our own logical thoughts. That's not the way. We need smoke. We need to fill the, the room with smoke before we can really enter into God's presence. But what can we do? We can invite Hashem into our lives to be a living presence in our day-to-day. And so we can seek his guidance when we need to make a decision. Not just when we pray, do we ask, but prayer is also opening our hearts and opening our ears and opening our minds and opening our lives to his guidance. It's to live as connected to the source of all life and believe that he will, just as he makes the flower grow and flourish, he too so created this world for us to grow and to flourish. And if we live in tune, he will manifest that in our lives. He will allow us to grow into who he created us to be. And so I want to bless all of us that with all the confusion and all of the chaos that we invite Hashem into our lives and that emunah in the face of all the doubts, in the face of all the confusion, that's what emunah is. It is to choose the good despite the evidence being unclear and saying with that space, I'm choosing to bring God into my life. I'm choosing the good over the bad. I'm choosing to live seeking out his presence in our day-to-day lives. And so may we seek his guidance when we need to make decisions and may we aim our lives towards the ultimate good. And as we become more good, we become more godly and the Shekhinah will reside in our home. And may Hashem bless all of us with Shalom in our home. And from that place, from this place, from this land, from Eretz HaKodesh, 
from the holy land that is filled with God's presence, where God's eyes are on this land from the beginning of the year to the year's end. All of this, dear fellowship, I want to bless you. May you all have the holiest week. May you feel Hashem in your lives. May He shine His light into your hearts and illuminate your path. And may we again meet, but not just virtually. Please soon in Yerushalayim, Habnuya, in a new rebuilt Jerusalem. Shalom, my friends. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.